Roads, a podcast, and a Sunday school class, and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Season 3, and we're looking at the world of Jesus as told by the Gospel of Mark. Now, I want to remind you guys of something that I always like to say when it comes to gospel teachings or gospel lessons, and that is that the Gospels are not merely newspaper reportings of an event. They're not merely history, but rather they're artful retellings where uh, events are told in sequence, and there's a theological meaning as well as a historical meaning. And so we're going to have a lot to talk about as we talk about Jesus seen through the lens of the Gospels in general, and then Mark in particular. But all that said, it has been very exciting in the world of biblical archaeology, which you know I love, to see how congruent and how accurate actually historic and scientific findings line up with what Mark and others remember about Jesus and the world of Jesus. So we're going to have some fun with that as well. But I think the best way to get started with Mark is to read it, and I want to show you how much you can get out of just eight verses in the first chapter. So this is how we'll begin with Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and let's roll. It goes like this. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the first thing I want to show you this morning is a picture of of a mikvah on the southern steps of the Temple Mount. Okay, a mikvah is a ritual bath, and you see the steps going down into it. This mikvah was designed for people to go down one side and back up the other. There are mikvah, or the plural, I'm pretty sure is mikvahot. There are mikvah all over the world of Jesus. They're all over the land of Israel. Anytime faithful people would gather, they would have some fresh water for purity. Every once in a while, you just would be required to bathe in order to worship. And so these mikvah were here on the southern steps for a specific reason. One would need to bathe before one could enter the precinct of the Temple Mount, which makes these ritual baths a little different in that I will call them industrial mikvah. These were intended to not for the village uh, to wash periodically, but rather to move crowds through. During the festivals, uh, you would need to get thousands of people in and out and in and out so that they could ascend the Temple Mount for the various festivals. And there were priests running these things that you would see every year. Now, 
one of the things I want you to get your mind around is that there were three festivals of the Hebrews and people would walk. Jesus from Galilee would walk four or five days, depending on the road, depending on the weather, uh, to do this thing every year of his life, uh, at least once a year, every year of his life. And so he would walk these southern steps and he would enter a mikvah and you would see the same priest every year, which means that these priests were not only familiar, but they were rock stars. I had a um, a neat experience this summer. I was able to go to Israel for a couple of weeks to see my friend Edon. The borders are closed because of this pandemic disruption, but I was able to score a, a work visa. Edon and another friend of ours named Amalia somehow convinced the government that we were an, all an essential business and we needed to be together. And I'm not sure how we pulled it off, but it was wonderful. It was great to be in Jerusalem without scores and scores of Christian pilgrims from around the world covering things up. So, for instance, later when we get to, say, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, there were no lines. I mean, something that would have taken three hours to see, you just walk right in. And that part was amazing. But another insight that I had, which I wouldn't have otherwise, was a chance to experience Jerusalem for residents of Jerusalem alone, both Jewish and Arab. Jerusalem for Jerusalemites, if you will. And so one day when I was on the southern steps, actually taking pictures of this mikvah and thinking about uh, about this podcast, actually, uh, I began to see Tuesday was Bar Mitzvah Day at the Western Wall, and it was a hoot. So the Western Wall is just right around the corner from, from this mikvah and these southern steps. And the Western Wall is a place where faithful, especially the Orthodox Jewish people, will worship there uh, because it's the closest to where the temple's Holy of Holies would have remained. And so they've got a big space there for bar mitzvahs. they got a big space around the southern steps for bar mitzvahs. And so you would see these lines of buses. So there are no buses for pilgrims, but lines of buses for locals, uh, are usually white, usually with the name of the kid, son or daughter, even bar mitzvah to bot mitzvah and there'd be a videographer there and it was all carefully choreographed because right at 10 o'clock uh the bus would open the doors and the kid would come out in a in a fresh white suit and all the family would come out uh behind him and they would be just laughing and carrying on and there were these two musicians it was a saxophone guy and a bongo guy and this guy would play them down to the western wall uh saxophone this kind of Israeli sounding uh, New Orleans jazz. It was almost like the French Quarter, but Israeli style. And then the bongo guys playing, boom, and they're walking down to the to the Western Wall for the ceremony where there's a rabbi waiting and a lot of food. Now there's about twelve of these rigs going on at the same time. So bongo guy and and saxophone guy would then just turn right around and go right back to the next bus, playing the whole time and play them right back down. Point is, it was a hoot. Now, we Christians tend to to transmit what we think worship ought to be onto the world of Jesus in that we tend to think that worship is only solemn and it's only quiet and it's only majestic in the way the cathedral is majestic, right? It's only pious in the way that we might consider Western Christianity to be pious when, in fact, uh, the festivals were fun. They were fun. I mean, they were not only filled with uh, opportunities of worship and great solemnity, but they and the sacrifices, of course, but also they were filled with food and laughter and travel and reconnection and yes, bongo guy and a lot of music and a lot of just a lot of excitement. And I want you to imagine when we think about these mikvah on the southern steps of of happy people moving in and out and in and out and in and out and being helped by the local clergy whose job was to make all this happen. 
this was an inherited job. The priesthood of this temple service would be something that your daddy did and your daddy did before that. You were born into it. You would see people every year for their entire lives so that you were well-known and well-loved and part of the fun. These people were rock stars. And they had a title for these temple clergy who were running these mikvah. They were called Baptists. Baptist. And one day we're told in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that one of these Baptists named John walked away. That's the drama of the world of Jesus told through the gospel of Mark. John walked away. So I want to show you a diagram of how Mark sort of fits in in the Bible. Um, This is just an easy little thing to get your mind around. What you can see from the circles and the arrows is that the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are told pretty much the same way. They're called the synoptic Gospels, which is a fancy word for saying that they're told with the same view. Uh, But what you can see from the little diagram is that Mark is both found in Matthew and Luke. As a matter of fact, about 95% of Mark is found in both. Matthew and Luke. So Mark is sort of inside both of the ways that they tell the story. John is off to the side because it's told with a different um, a different point of view, a different festival, a different uh, a different timeline, even if you will. But this is this is will get you, this will locate you uh, with the synoptic gospels, how they tell the story of Jesus and and the shape of it, if you will, uh, the shape of Jesus around the feast of the Passover. However, here's where I'm going. Matthew and Luke begin with Christmas. Mark begins with John the Baptist. For Mark, John the Baptist, quitting his job from the southern steps of the Temple Mount, running an industrial mikvah, beloved by generations of people, with a good family job and a good neighborhood in the southwest of Jerusalem, for John to walk away from that existence is as miraculous as a star over the city of Bethlehem. And what I'd like to submit to you is that the gospel of Mark is an answer to the question, why? Why did John leave that? Where did he go? Well, there's one ready answer that we all learned from our Sunday school days, right? John the Baptist was here to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, that John the Baptist would be the forerunner for his cousin Jesus' ministry in the wilderness. And yes, that's an answer, but I'd like to go to a bigger picture answer before I get to that one so that we might have a little more depth of understanding with our Sunday school understanding of who John the Baptist might be. I want to show you another picture of the Southern Steps, uh, and it's a remarkable picture because it gives you an idea of the of the scope and the grandeur of those steps. I even have a a little temple diagram behind me here, the Southern Steps going up to this huge temple complex. I've just got it sketched out on my board here. Uh, What I want you to to think about when you look at um, the steps is I want you to consider that the baby Jesus was carried up these steps. Uh, The young adult Jesus walked up these steps. Boy Jesus walked up these steps as well. The adult Jesus walked up these steps again and again and again and again. When I go to Israel, I like to play a game that I call a get. And a get is when you can touch something or see something that you can find in the Bible, or you can touch something or see something that Jesus touched. These steps are the ultimate get. I mean, you can climb these stairs and know that Jesus' own sandaled feet walk these stairs as well. It's remarkable and holy and life-changing experience. Now, we call these the steps to the temple. 
Sometimes you'll see in your Bibles, a study Bible or a history book, that we call this the second temple because the first temple, the Temple of Solomon, was destroyed by the Babylonians some 600 years before Jesus' birth. So we call this the second temple, but in reality, this is a third temple. It's Herod's temple. The, the second temple was rebuilt when God's people returned from exile, but some 40 years before Jesus' birth, a man named Herod became the sole leader of Judea uh, as a client kingdom of the Romans. Uh, Herod the Great ruled Judea uh, for right up until about the time of Jesus' birth, and I've heard it said that Herod was the ultimate builder and the ultimate pleaser, and this is what I mean. By pleasing his Roman overlords and keeping Judea, which would be the superhighway of commerce in the Near East, by keeping the roads open and the taxes coming, uh, they would enrich him to the point that he would become the third richest man in the world and would have a title, King of the Jews. Okay, that's the first thing about Herod. Herod pleased his masters, but he also pleased the people. He had to get their minds off the fact that they were a client kingdom. He had to get their minds off the fact that taxes were deadening. He had to get their minds off the fact that the Romans were living in the promised land. And so he built them He built them a temple uh, that was the wonder of the ancient world. Uh, Herod knew that a good building project uh, could get your mind off just about anything, and the temple was something to see. And this would be the temple of Jesus' lifetime. Now, before I say any more about the temple, I want us to get our minds around worship in Jesus' day so that that this world of Jesus, as told by Mark, is going to make sense to us. God's people said their prayers every seventh day, just like the just like the law of Moses told them. They would rest on the Sabbath, and then they would go to the synagogue to study God's word and to say their prayers. So they would, I'd like to say the synagogue was a little like the way we do Sunday school. Three times a year, they would worship, if they could make it three times a year, at least one time a year. But they would travel to Jerusalem so that the city of Jerusalem would swell from, say, tens of thousands of people to perhaps even a million people as Hebrews from around the world would come. And as I've mentioned, it might take Jesus four to five days to get there, but he would do it like the rest of them so that they could worship in Jerusalem for the festivals. Now, I want to show you a photograph uh, that I that Edan took of me standing in front of the Dome of the Rock, which is on the Temple Mount. And what makes this photograph remarkable, that famous right icon of the city of Jerusalem, the domed structure there. This is one of the holiest sites of Islam. It is difficult to visit, uh, especially if you're not Muslim, but but you, you can do it. There's a lot of security concerns. I had to make sure that I didn't have a Bible in my person. I had to make sure that I answered the questions that they wanted me to ask. I could not go inside the Dome of the Rock. Lots of restrictions. What's remarkable about this photograph is I'm alone never happens. I mean, never, never happens to stand up there by yourself, just alone with the birds. And shortly after taking this photograph, we were asked to, to move on. And, and we did. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to be there long enough to appreciate a couple things. First of all, the Temple Mount itself is a tabletop structure. It's a leveled off place of what would have been a round mountain. It's a round, it's, it's, it's almost like a, an altar sitting in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, this 37 acres and made a flat Jerusalem stone. And just, it is amazing. I've never really been in a place that vast, except for perhaps 
a parking lot of a SEC stadium or, you know, some vast space like that. I'm imagining perhaps Tiananmen Square or Red Square. I mean, it's just to have a, a man-made space that that's that open and that constructed is remarkable. And then the Dome of the Rock, which is behind me in the photograph, uh, is only half the height of the temple. So the temple is twice the size on this tremendous man-made altar structure, which made it truly something to see and something to travel to at least once a year for the entirety of your lives. Because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who gave Moses the law, the God who gave them land and a country, the God of King David and King Solomon lived in that building. Can you even imagine what that would have been like? The grandeur and the fun, remember Mongo guy and the and the and the saxophone player. So the food, the the family, the people, the rock star clergy, the the experience of it all would be like nothing else in the world except for a problem. The Romans were on top of this and everybody knew it. Connected to the Temple Mount was the Fortress Antonia. Uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, at the time of Jesus' adulthood, he could send in he could send in troops at any time and stop this thing. And they all knew it. They all knew the Romans were on top. And there's something that we need to say about about what's on top. Uh, the Hebrew religion, uh, the the Hebrew scriptures, by extension, then our Bible. Okay, our Bible has always said that God needs to be on top. God has to be on top of everything, all of our priorities, all of our decisions, our families, our friends. God comes first. Faith becomes a pair of glasses through which we see everything, and that's our relationship with God. The problem with Herod and his and his pleasing his Roman masters and the problem with Herod and his pleasing the people with this temple complex is that the Romans were on top. And at this point in human history, the Romans uh, were a people controlled by their appetites, controlled by their unsatisfied appetites. And this would be appetites for sex, for money, for power, for blood, uh, for control, for conquest, you name it. And they don't sound a whole lot different uh, than modern people today, but the Romans were on top. And that's the bigger picture problem. And this is why John walked. He walked away. He took them out from the temple steps and the temple mount and the largest building anyone had ever seen and the wonder of the ancient world. He took them away from the festivals and from the food and from the family. He took them out in the clean air of the desert to a pretty little river called the Jordan. I'll show you a picture of the Jordan River. It's not much of a river for you Birmingham friends. It looks like the little Cahaba and it's a pretty little thing and 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 it's, it's lush down by the river and then it's a moonscape all around it so that it becomes a lifeline if you will, through that part of the world. And he took them down there because God made them the prettiest little mikvah that you could find. It was a mikvah that was God-made, not man-made, not industrial, but a place where they could wash and they could pray and they could repent, which means to turn. Now, I want you to make no mistake here. What John was doing was not merely walking away from a good job. And here's where the Gospels can, can get us into deeper meanings. What John was doing was carefully crafted political theater or carefully crafted theology. There's an exercise I like to walk us through from time to time when we think about the, the Bible. And remember, the Bible is not a book. It's a library of books. And these books were written over a millennium or more and a thousand pages of Scripture. But you can connect some dots. And one of these is an exercise that I once heard called the silence of God. And it works like this. 
if you look at the stories that you know in Scripture from the very beginning, so Genesis, for instance, God is really up close and in living color, walking and talking in the garden, appearing to patriarchs in the form of dreams or maybe angels, and then eventually God appears in the to, in the form of prophets to either to warn or or to get people to live right. But over time, God's God's presence begins to recede a bit, so that so that. After you get to about 500 years before Jesus' birth, God quits talking. God God sent a prophet to them way out in exile to give them comfort and hope, and then God led them home. But God quits talking to them again, and so there's silence for a long, long time, which which makes me wonder if if everyone ever ever feared that these were only words on a page and not true, right? So that when John the Baptist appears in the wilderness dressing like Elijah, they begin to see that God is talking again. When John walks away from this good job and takes him down to the river, it it feels like the old stories that they knew, the pages of Scripture were coming to life again. And then John says two things to them that are very, very important. It might get right by us, but if we if we lived in the world of Jesus, we would have heard it right away. First of all, John said, I'm a messenger to prepare your way, which is a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which was a messianic promise, which is to say, no matter how bad things get, the Messiah is going to come and bring us home. And the Romans were bad. And so they were looking for a Messiah to give them relief. That's that's the first thing. The Messiah is coming. That's key. John the Baptist came to tell them that. And then the second one may even be more important because he says, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight, which is a quote from Isaiah 40. Now, this one is really key because Isaiah was a prophet for the first 39 chapters who warned them of doom to come. And it came. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army, would take everything away from them. But in chapter 40, the words the words go from doom to comfort. I'm going to bring you home. Make a highway because I'm going to bring you home. Make your path straight for me because you will be okay. You've got God and you've got each other and I will bring you back. So for this reason, John the Baptist caused great excitement down by the Jordan River, walking away from a rock star job, but also looking like Elijah and saying words of hope. While I was over there, I learned something about the Philistines that I never considered. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament from time to time. But you remember the Philistines? And Goliath was a Philistine. Delilah was a Philistine. Philistines killed King Saul. So the Philistines were the bad boys of the Old Testament. What I learned about the Philistines, and I spent a little time where Philistines lived, is that they were people competing for the same land. They were a displaced people from, from somewhere far north of, of what would we now call Judea. But they were also competing for land along with King David, along with King Saul, and along with the judges before them, so that they, they become sort of an enemy in the Old Testament when in reality they were also human beings just trying to get along and find a place in the world. What I learned about the Philistines, that is, I feel sorry for the Philistines these days, um, they disappeared in the exile. The same exile that swept over God's people, swept over Judea. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had the idea that he would he would take their best and their brightest far away so that they would lose their identity, so that they would lose their nation, lose their people. The Philistines disappear in exile. God's people don't. They get busy. They write the Bible. God's promise is real. Prepare a way because I'm going to bring you home. 
one final little photograph. I, this has become iconic for St. Luke's. It's just a photograph of a family praying during our school blessing that we had a couple of weeks ago. We're trying to remain useful in this time for families. We're trying to give them markers where they can pray for each other and care for each other and hopefully get through a school year with no disruption. In many ways, this pandemic has been like an exile for us. And it's been, it's been a time of great fear. And yet we have comforting words. And we also have the presence of Jesus to remind us that it's going to be okay. We can remain faithful. We can keep our identity. We can keep our community. We can keep our hope. We can we can keep our faith going. We can kindle the fire because God always has something better for us. We don't have to settle for anything else on top but God's word and God's promises that the Messiah, the creator of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, has his eye on you and me, knows the dreams we had last night, and no matter what has got us afraid, we can go home one day. In the meantime, we'll have everything we need. And this is what John told them in the desert, and this is why he walked away, and this is the good news of the gospel that we're going to keep telling in season three of Jericho Road. That's what you get out of eight verses, and I look forward to telling you some more. So thank you, friends, for your your time and your, your prayers and your presence, and let's keep it going.